0: Good morning. We uh, are in the second week of what we called um, devoted to the mess. Uh, just a little break that we're building up through to Easter, and then um, we'll be back in the book of Matthew. Actually, we're looking at a couple texts today—one in Matthew and the other out of um, the Gospel of John. Uh, last week, I kind of talked about the reason for doing this. The reason why we are we are diving into this this, this series is the fact that that if you were here, and I raised your hand, and I asked you to raise your hand. I said, how many of you have a broken relationship in your life? Well, let's do it again. Raise your hand if you have some relationship that is broken, whether it's a family member, a friend, or a, a, used to be a friend that you're now calling an enemy, or maybe a Facebook friend that you unfriended, you know, or whatever it may have been. But, but either way, there was this, this, this idea that, that relationships are broken, and that, that we, I believe that we as the church, and this is what we kind of went through last week, is we defined what the role of the church was. And we talked about how in Ephesians 2, how how God has called through the peace of Jesus Christ, has called those who are far, those who have never experienced God's grace in their life, and those who are near, maybe those who are raised in the church. In their day, it was the Gentiles and the Jews. And and we talked about how how he brought all of those together to bring this display, this this manifold, the varied wisdom of God on earth is that group of people together, the place where when all of those people are together, God was delighted to to dwell within. And he removed the, the temple, he removed the, the, the buildings and the walls and everything else. He said, no, the church is you as an individual. And if you as an individual are the church and then as a small sea church kind of collectively, us together and then a part of the big sea church of, of all of those surrendered to the person and work of Jesus Christ around the world. And so if that's the case, if there's a defining term on who we are and what our role is and what we are to be as those who have surrendered to the person and work of Jesus Christ, then there has to be lines and parameters at which the Bible leads us into how to do relationships with everything else. And so what we talked about last week is, is if we don't understand the, the fact that, that we view relationships mainly as conditional, we will always struggle to, to live in light of the fact that we're going to have broken relationships over and over again I pushed on you and said that look Facebook and and the social media has has distanced us one step further where we where we can where we've defined our friendships like a, a four-year-old would in a, in a playground you know I'm a friend and now we're not a friend it's just this it's it's arbitrary in how it's decided and yet we we are and I, I pushed on you and he said one of some of us are we're the we're the Fort Knox walking around with these walls built up because we've been burned by relationships We've been burned by so many people that we have so many walls up that we won't trust you unless you can do this, 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 and we have this big long line where ultimately we end up isolated. And Jesus is saying that we are, or the Apostle Paul is saying that through Jesus Christ is the foundation of our faith, is the cornerstone of our faith, that when we are together we display this wisdom of God, then there means that we have to be doing something together and we can't just be isolated. And then the the opposite side, I said, some of you are extroverts, and I, I lump myself in this like a lot of people like you or don't like you or they know you but none of them really truly know you and you hide behind that wall and either way there's this there's this middle ground where I said all of us at the end of this hopefully at the end of this culmination we'd understand that there is a way that we as the church we as an individual church individual church and collectively as a church can interact with those in this world and with each other and, and in marriage and everything else that comes along with that. And if that's the case, then my goal, my, my prayer for you guys is that you would, you would be willing to just kind of surrender yourself to that there's this next step. There's this next step. And maybe, maybe for you it's, man, I have been isolated from my spouse Maybe for you it's, I've been isolated from those within the church. Or maybe for you it's, I've been isolated from family members. Or I've, I've, been, I've been fighting and there's just this, this broken and this, this harshness and this, this ugly relationship where I don't, I don't have peace when their name comes up. When I think of them and I pushed on you and said, look, we all have that. Now, I want to say this again and I feel like a lot of you and, and a good chunk of you do this so well. You do relationships so well. As hard as this is to hear, I, exam, I, I used the example last week with the, with the fires in the Philippines where we just said, hey, on Facebook, if you can help, and you we guys were able to send over $3,800 to help them. Like, just pouring yourself out. And this week, if, if we are the church, meaning as an individual, I am the church and you are the church, those that have surrendered to Jesus Christ are the church, then how are we to be devoted to the world? And that's where we are today. What does it mean for you and me that are the church, you and me as individuals that have surrendered to Christ, to interact with the world? And so that's what we're going to dig in today. And then next week, we'll talk about how we interact with each other. And so this week, as, as we dive into the world, I want to just kind of disclaimer real quick, there are about five different groups in the entire Bible of what the world means. When the word the world shows up in the, in the Old and New Testament, about five different groups, and they all have different meanings, but they also all have different subgroups. So you have to be really careful when you just read the world and assume, well, that's applying to this one or this one because they can be very different in what they mean. The world that I'm going to talk about are the inhabitants, the people, the people world. It's a a group, the main group and the subgroup would be the inhabitants on the physical earth itself. The ones, you know, that Jesus died for the world. He didn't die for, for the tree. He died for the people. Although ultimately he will renew all things. But the people, the world that I'm talking about, are those that are in this world that are not a part of God's kingdom yet. So, how do you and I, as followers of Jesus, as this display of this church that's cornerstoned on the person of Jesus Christ, how do we interact with the world? And my assumption is, my assumption is, actually, let's let's do this. Let's survey this real quick. How many of you have had a friend a acquaintance, a family member, or someone that has this view of the church that they are hated. Raise your hand if that's the case. Only a few of you? Okay, well, a lot of you can't see. It. Anyways, that's okay. I'm just going to pretend that you all raised your hand for my point. Thank you. But the, the, the point is, is that the view of the church is an issue. Now, here's, here's some generalizations that I want to be careful about for us to engage in. First off, a few people that claim the name of Christ are really, really making an ugly version of Christ in this church those that aren't in the church. So let's be honest, there's, 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 there's organizations, there's hate groups that bear the name of Christ, and I say that with quotation marks because they really don't, but they they display this hatred to people. In fact, so much so that, that they they display this in so many different ways that most people that are outside of the church or those that have left the church, and I say as individuals, they are out because they're like, man, they're just, they're just hypocrites, and they're just, they're rude, and they hate, and, and really what it comes down to is most Most of the people in your life, they believe that the church is is full of hate just because of a few. Now, my assumption is that most of you don't go around holding up signs. But if we're really honest in our posture and in our interaction, we have some sign that we display. In fact, the first sign I want to show you is something like this. God hates And it's this blank sign that we aren't aren't standing on a corner saying, although some do, but we aren't standing on a corner saying God hates this, but we live as though he does. And we posture ourselves as though he does. And let me be very clear, what I'm going to talk about today isn't us trying to save the identity of the church because the identity is rooted in Christ and nothing can affect that. Nothing can affect that. What I'm trying to engage in as individuals as a church, how do we interact with this world? And the problem is all of us have a sign. And we wouldn't stand up and say it, but we we posture ourselves in the way we communicate to other people because what we do is we take a justifiable, maybe albeit pharisaical, belief and we push that on every other person. And if they don't do it, we just basically say, well, you know what? God hates you then. And we would never utter those words and we would never say those words and maybe some of us have and that's another issue but I'm going to give you kind of the, the benefit of the doubt that some of us have something like that. And look, I, I want to push, you guys do a great job of, of loving this, this world, loving this community. We, we see it when we serve Sundays. We see hundreds of people go out and serve people with nothing in return but just to be there and so I know you have this, this desire to do it right but each of us has a sign each of us has a sign and ultimately what we do is when we posture ourselves we're saying this we're saying god hates you and the problem is isn't that we need to change the view of the world towards the church because let's be honest the apostle paul tells us in second corinthians that you're an aroma of christ you're either gonna bring life to those who have life or death to those who have death like look the word of god is going to divide and it's going to separate but is there a way in which you and I as a church should be interacting with this world that doesn't display God hates you? Is there a way? There are so many unchurched or de people that are afraid of the bride of Christ because they believe that. In fact, let me push on you a little bit. Some of you in here, you claim to bear Christ, but you have so much shame in you, you believe that. That God hates you. And that is not the message of Jesus Christ. That is not the point of Jesus Christ. In fact, as the church, we're to do something different than that. We're called to be different than that. We're called to be devoted to this world. But our view to the church, and I, as a pastor, I get this interaction. It's like the first thing someone asks, what do you do? And I'm like, oh, conversation's gonna change really quickly. And like, I'm a pastor. And then you can see it in their posture, whether they've been burned or they've, they've been hurt they have the hatred. Their, their posture changes with me, and I, like it'd be really easy for me to just you know kind of hold back in a hole and lie about what I do, or, or be a, be worried that that I'm gonna somehow mess up Jesus's name. But I think the difference is I think we're called to be devoted to this mess. I think that you and I, as as followers of Jesus, are actually called to be in this. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at a couple texts that I think are commandments of us doing so. And so out of out of um, out of Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. It's, it's right in the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus has been laying out this amazing scripture of, of what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be surrendered. And he's been pushing on the heart, and we taught about this a long time ago. But essentially what he's saying, is he's saying, look, and he, he, as, he's, as he's preaching, he's saying, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, and then he turns after he just talks about, look, you're going to be persecuted. It's like he turned from the crowd and turns to his disciples and says, you're going to be cursed, persecuted, but you you disciples, you followers of me are called to be salt and light. Let's look at the text before I obliterate it in my own version. Um, verses 13 says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on it set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house." In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so Jesus is saying, look, there's this role as disciples of what we're supposed to do. We're called to be salt and we're called to be light. Now, both of those were terms that were understood and made sense to the culture in that day. Both of them were something they all understood. In fact, salt had a really high value in that day. Salt was very important. It was, it, was, it was something that most of them would understand. Like, this is of, of value. And what would happen is, is sometimes the salt would get um, bad taste of it. it. would be around the Dead Sea and had some other things in it where it didn't taste good. And they wouldn't throw the salt out on the crops at the risk of killing crops. So they would put them on the, tra- on the trails where it would be trampled. But just so you know, the salt really doesn't lose its saltiness. The only way you do it is diluting it. Diluting it and diluting it and diluting it down to where it doesn't have any value again. And so what's so unique about this, what's so unique about the salt is that ultimately there are two things that Jesus is calling us to do. First is, is salt is we are to preserve. We are to come in and preserve something that is going bad. That is something they would do with meat is they would preserve it through salt. And so we are, we are the salt. It's to keep this world is, from rotting. If I, if I asked you if you felt like this world was struggling or rotting, despite the advances we've made in technology and everything else, there's one thing that's true is we're not getting any better as a world. In fact, we're getting further and further away from God. The world is rotting, and we are to be the salt that keeps the world from rotting. We are to be the salt to do this. Now, salt is something that is somewhat hidden. You don't see it once it's in the food, but it changes the food. It's something that you you can't really make sense, but you're like, this is better now because salt is present. Similarly, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we are to be doing things that make this world a better place for the glory of Jesus Christ. Not so that we can be, again, I want to be really clear, not so that we can be glorified for what we do. We don't serve Sunday, so it's like, oh, let's go serve everyone so that Revolution 22 can get a great name. No. He says do it so that when people see what you're doing, they can give glory to God in heaven. And so salt is what we do. Salt is how you and I interact. It's when we're out serving others. It's, it's us being present in life. It's not actually this overt thing. But then, just in case you're wondering, you're like, oh, you know, yeah, that's right. Preach Christ always. Just use words when necessary. Although that quote is totally misquoting someone, and it's totally not really justifiable. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Because he calls us to be salt and light. He doesn't say salt or light. He doesn't say salt and sometimes light. He doesn't say light without salt. He says salt and light. And what light brings into is, is light is what we preach. It's what we say. See, light exposes darkness. So we can, we, can show Christ, we can show Christ by what we do through the salt and we can bring in Christ by what we say when we preach God's word as a light. And those of you who know this, if I turned off every light in here and it got dark and then turned these really bright lights that are on me and on, the first reaction is, ah, oh, it's hard. It's hard to see. It takes a second for your eyes to adjust and that's the light that we are. When we come with the name of Christ, when we preach the word of God, that comes at us in the dark places and darkness is... It, it, it flees light. And so this is why it's, it's called, we're called to expose light. So when Jesus says, be salt and light, he's calling us to do and to preach, to do and to speak. So those of you in here are like, I, you know, I don't really feel like I ever have to say anything. Listen, now God can do this, but I want to be really clear. If you buy someone a cup of coffee just behind you because you want it to be nice, it's not like they're going to get that coffee and be like, oh, my word, Jesus died for my sins. I need to be forgiven, and I want to go to heaven right now. Now, God can do miracles, but it's not an intuitive message. If you think about it, it really isn't super intuitive. The the, the Bible teaches that if we don't say it, the rocks are going to cry out, right? So it's going to come either way. But it's not intuitive. Someone just getting something nice, like we, you can name one Good thing, good movie, where they're always like, oh, we want to see someone do something good, and that's great. But if it doesn't bear the name of Christ, we talked about this last week, if the foundation isn't Christ, it will crumble and fall. Right? So we are called to not just do, but we're called to share as well. And I love it. Jesus says, he's like, look, look you wouldn't put, it would, be, it would be asinine to put a lamp underneath a basket. I've been to Israel and I stood kind of where they, they assume that on the Sea of Galilee where, where they're, they're estimating where his, his, the Sermon on the Mount was and where he's preaching. It's like he would have sat down on the boat and kind of preached up in this natural amphitheater. And right behind there is, is this city right behind. It's been there forever. And I'm like, Jesus is going, look, a city on a hill is meant to be seen. It's, it's up there. We know it's there. You don't. it can't be hidden. Similarly, it'd be silly for you and I to hide who Christ is in our life. Not just in action, but in word. Look, I'll tell you, I have this very real battle in my life when I meet someone new and we're having a conversation, and it always comes to, so what do you do? And I've thought of all the creative ways. Okay, so let's see here. Um, I work at this place, you know, down to like, and I feel like I have to hide what I do because I'm afraid that, that in some way that's going to ruin the witness of God. Jesus is saying, no, be light. Why hide it? I'm be like, I'm a pastor. Yo, deal with it. I don't do that, just so you know. That's not what I do. <laughs> but the, but the, the, the point is this, is that it's like, look, I, I should take joy and, 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 and I should be able to boast in the spirit of God in me for the opportunity and, the, and the, the, the ability to be a pastor for his kingdom here on earth. Like, that's a beautiful thing. And so not only do I then say it, but I can show it too. And we get so messed up. Now, this is the thing. We are, some of us are really good at being light. We're holding that sign and we're saying it all day long, but we really don't do anything. And most of those people usually are Pharisees in the Bible. And some of us, this, this, we get this spot where it's like, let's just do a bunch of other stuff, and I'll never ever tell them about who this, this hope that I have. Like, we're afraid that they would be offended by the hope of Jesus Christ and everlasting life. That is the most ridiculous thing ever. As followers of Christ, as the manifold wisdom of God, each of us has a role in being light and salt to this world. So that means when you go out to eat, you're salt and light. That means when you're at work, you're salt and light. When you're at school, you're salt and light. It's not like you get a check out. Well, today I'm just going to be me without that. He's saying that's useless. Don't get so diluted by this world that you, you have no purpose we're called to be in this world, but not of this world. Remember, Jesus said last week, or the Apostle Paul said last week, that we were strangers and aliens, but now we are citizens. of the, We are co-heirs with Christ in God's kingdom. We are his children, adopted in. So we have this very beautiful place. With it comes this call to serve. But the problem is, is a lot of us have this bent to a certain gender, to a certain preference to a certain whatever it may be you pick whatever cultural topic we want to talk about and we all have this bent, and ultimately we're holding that sign god hates you in the way we communicate and interact with them and that is not salt and light now let me be again very clear god's word is going to cut at the sins of us it is going to cut at it when you are exposed to light darkness has to flee Darkness will flee, but it's not my job to make darkness flee in someone. I just get to be the light that's bouncing from Christ in me onto others. I'm just carrying that message. Now, what I want to do is I wanted to talk about a story that is, that is, I think, one of the most applicable ways that you and I can interact with the world. And it's a very common story, and we're going to look at it out of, out of the Gospel of John. So you can turn over a couple pages if you have it there. John chapter 4. And what I love about this story is that it's a, it's a very unique one because um, there's so many accounts in this that make this such a beautiful thing. But Jesus is, is, is in Jerusalem, and he's doing some stuff, and the Pharisees are starting. It's around baptism. There's an argument kind of in chapter 3 about what's going on. and So we don't necessarily know whether he, Jesus was concerned with the, the testimony of John the Baptist being diluted or ruined because Jesus' disciples were doing baptisms in Jerusalem. But either way, they decide to leave there. And when you leave Jerusalem, like I've told you this before, when you leave Jerusalem, you always go down. You leave, leave, you're always going down to somewhere else because Jerusalem's up on on top. And so he leaves there, and there's a number of different ways to go to Galilee. And there's shorter routes, and there's longer routes, and the whole Good Samaritan story is is true in the fact that some of the routes were really dangerous. But what was present in in Jesus' day and age was this, this adversity, this ugliness of Jews versus Samaritans or Jews and Gentiles. And there was this, they did not want to mix there was an equal hatred. See, Samaritans were, were these northern region Israel Jews that the Assyrians came in and kind of destroyed around 700 B.C. and they, they, they took captive and they, they sent them out into Assyria and then they brought others into Jerusalem. And what ended up happening is they had these half-breed Jewish people that were, that were mixed in with not-Jewish people. And so they became disdained or hated by the Jews. And vice versa, the Jews did a really good job of... Um, kind of squashing and, and fighting with the Samaritans. And so there was a hatred, a mutual hatred there. So much so that both of them kind of would would come around Jacob. And at Jacob, they kind of went one way. And the issue was, is the temple meant to be on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem or is it meant to be on Mount Gerizim where they are in Samaria? And so it was this battle of whether or not who was right and which, which one was right. And they were kind of existing in the same area. And there was this battle and this fight and this ugliness. And they both had kind of different views, but there was... The, the Samaritans only had about five or so of the Old Testament books that they would use, and then the Jews had the other 39 or so that they would use. And so there was this, this kind of Jewish bent out of the Samaritans, but it was this half-breed kind of messed up ethnic difference. They were very, very different in the look. They were darker skinned, so it's easy to see them. And, and so there's ethnic, religious, and this, this just this animosity that was present. And so Jews would go out of their way. They would travel from Jerusalem down to Galilee. Instead of doing the straight shot, they would go this way or this way to miss the Samaritans and the, or the Gentiles, but not to go down the middle where they would always have to intermingle. And so they would, they would move their, their, their travel, and they'd go every which direction to try and find what made the most sense. But there was immense animosity. Now, what's intriguing about this story, and this story is it's, it's called the, the Woman at the Well. Right? What's so intriguing about this story is that Jesus goes this direction. And now I believe, and this is where we're going to go, Jesus, Jesus decides to go this direction. He comes into, into um, this town, and he's, he's hot. It's midday, most likely. They're going off of the Jewish calendar, but it's midday, which is, is, is kind of the hottest point of the day, and they've been traveling for a while. And he goes, he sends his disciples off into the town to get food. Now what's really intriguing about that is that his disciples were of Jewish descent and for them to intermingle or to eat a food that even had been touched by a Samaritan, it was unclean. And so Jesus sends his disciples into the town and he's like, go get some food. And they go into this town, the, the, the well's about a half a mile from this town, they go into this town to get food. I don't, we don't know this, like reading the story, I don't know if the disciples are like, well, wait a minute, how are we going to find kosher food in this town? Or if they were just like, you know what? Jesus said it, we're doing I Like, I don't know what it was, but either way, they go. And Jesus then sits at this well. And at high noon, this this Samaritan woman comes out to draw water from the well. And if you've heard this story, you're familiar with it. It's a really, really terrible time to get water. It's heavy. You wouldn't want to go that way. You wouldn't want to do that work. But she's coming out, and, and so it's pretty obvious she's coming out at a time when no other women would do it. So she's trying to hide herself from the women. So she's doing it where she doesn't have to mix in with other women. It would have been a long process of getting the water and then carrying it back in. And so she's coming out at this point. Now, scholars are all over the point. Like, why did Jesus leave? Why did he, why did he struggle? Or why did he, why did he go through Samaria? Like, there's so many arguments. But ultimately, what we can say is we know for sure that Jesus intentionally sat on this well, intentionally got rid of his disciples. Now, did he know the Samaritan woman was coming? Did he know what he was going to do? I would beg to say that yes, but what you get in this story is a couple really beautiful things. First off, Jesus sits down because he's weary and tired from the work. Now, I want you to hear that. The Son of Man, the Son of God is tired and weary. I think so often we forget that in the incarnation, Jesus came as God and and inhabited flesh. And he felt what we felt And the hot desert and the long trip was hard and he was thirsty legitimate needs were felt by our king yes he's God and he's perfect and that's great and he's sinless but he still feels and knows what you felt in thirst and so he sits at this well now what's intriguing about the story is I think that you and I as the church and I say you and I some of you are here like I'm not there yet that's okay but for those of us that have surrendered to Christ I think we find out what it means for us to be devoted to the world in this story and there's, there's three very specific things that Jesus does in this that I feel like all of us should be doing. And it's in place of us holding signs that God hates you. It's in place of us holding whatever sign it is, I will love you when you do this, this, and this. I will relationally jump in when you've proven that you can get through Fort Knox. I will relationally be invested in you. And this is, this is what Jesus does. So here's how the story picks up. He comes, from, he comes down from Jerusalem. He makes his way in. And he sends the disciples off, like we said, we got there, and this interaction happens. Now the Samaritan woman comes up, and that's what I'm going to pick up. And, and then, um, so he's sitting at Jacob's well, was there. Now some will argue it was Jacob's well or a well that was done by Jacob, but either way, it's, it's there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus says to her, give me a drink. Now I would have said please, but no, I'm just kidding. He says, give me, He says, give me a drink right, he says, give me a drink, and his, his, John gives us this, for his disciples had gone away, now this is really, really big, because on three fronts, Jesus is crossing a very, very big cultural taboo thing, first off is she's Samaritan, we already knew that that was an issue, second off, she's a woman, and it was very, very clear for most rabbis, rabbis wouldn't even speak to their spouses. They wouldn't even speak to women in public because there was this fear of what it would look. There was this, this view in this way that they would not speak to women in public. And so she's a woman. And the third reason is um, Samaritan woman, and ultimately, they're alone. They're alone. Now, women, they would not speak publicly or in any way, shape, or form, or go and be alone with another woman. Out of fear of what may or may not have been said, there could have been attacks. Some of the, say it's the fear of, you know, with the whole Joseph and, and Pharaoh's wife saying, hey, he tried to do this. Like, there's no accountability in that. That being said, I, I just feel like it's worth saying this. That is such a hard line, but, but some of you right now, this is, this, is, this is just free. This is separate. But some of you right now, you don't have healthy boundaries in interactions with opposite sex. And I, I just feel like it's worth, like, Jesus. this is a taboo thing. And Jesus breaks this now. So we're obviously going to talk about how Jesus totally, like, bru- ruined the cultural thing. But some of you really don't have great boundaries in that. And that's just, just something that I would really, really encourage you to pay attention to. Okay, so Jesus breaks these, these taboos and sits down and says, give me a drink. And she does what anyone would do as a Samaritan. She doesn't even, she doesn't even pick up the pail to get him the water or anything. She looks at him and is like, why are you talking to me? Like, what are you doing here? She says, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then John adds, for, for Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. And then Jesus answered her, and this is what I love. So she asked this question, like, why are you talking to me? Like, why would, why would you even, what are you doing? And first off, we know that she's out there alone, wanting to be alone. Jesus, in my mind, intentionally sat down at that well, knowing that she was coming out, Right? And so she's like, why, why are you talking to me? She doesn't get him the drink. In fact, I don't know if she ever gets him the drink. The poor guy's probably really thirsty, but either way, right? So she, she doesn't get him the drink. She's like, why are you talking to me? And then Jesus, said, like, answers her question, but doesn't really answer. He takes it to a next step, and I love how Jesus does that. Um, this is where I think you and I would struggle doing this. But either way, he goes and says, he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And so he's, he's posing this. Now, John does this all over. He talks about water and spirit and all these different things to, to, to speak of eternal life and some other things. So John is very much writing this way. And so he's saying, look, I will give you living water if you knew this. So she's like, why are you talking to me? And he's like, look, look, if you knew, if you knew who you were talking to, You wouldn't be concerned with that. You'd be asking me for some water. And so she does this. He he, he engages with this question below the mere physical issue. He's already shown that he's stepped past the physical boundaries of Samaritan woman and alone, right? He's already pushed through those. But then he takes the conversation that's that's, that's here and he dives right back down and goes into a deeper level. She doesn't get it, but that's okay. Nicodemus, we have so many accounts of other people that don't get it right, when he tells Nicodemus he must be born again, and he's like, what? Mind-blowing. How did that happen? Right? She's like, how in the world are you going to get me water? This well's almost 100 feet deep. Like, how are you going to get me water? So she's, she, put, she answers on the physical. Almost says, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. I almost feel like she's like, hey, buddy, I don't, I don't know if you know this, but there's nothing to draw water with here. Like, you, you, it's deep. Like, almost like she feels sorry for the guy, right? She's like, hey, okay, I appreciate you talking to me, but you're kind of a little crazy here. Anyway, so she's like, you have nothing. The well is, you, the well is deep. Where, 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 where do you get that living water? And then she asks this question, which I think is one of those questions that all of us ask when we're exposed to light. She says, are you greater than Jacob? So what Jesus is he's saying, he's saying living water. Now she would have understood a little bit that that was different than just water. There was an understanding there, but it wasn't maybe un, like completely comprehensible. But she says, are you greater than Jacob? So what she does, what most of us, and I would say a lot of Christians do, and, and probably a lot of de-churched or unchurched people, or people in this world do, they take a personal conversation and they try and make it about some theology to try and disengage from it. Whoa, 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 this is uncomfortable. Tell me more about where you sit on this. And they kind of come into some theology level, because I'm, I'm more comfortable arguing up here at this grand thing than actually being personal and seeing and experiencing stuff that's going to affect my life personally. And so she says, are you greater than Jacob? Like, he's, he's the one that built this well, and he's drank from it, and his, his livestock drank from it, his sons drank from it. And then Jesus said to him, said to her, I love this, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And this woman said to him, sir, Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now, this is an interesting spot. So now she's like, whoa, 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 wait. Wait, you're talking about this water that's like, I don't have to come back out here. And she literally goes to the, I'm tired of coming out here alone in the middle of the hot day. Give me this water. So it's like she almost, she's like, okay, well, he's got something to offer now. And what it's going to do is it's going to change my physical well-being right now. And she's still engaging on this 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 top level, and so Jesus does what I think now, I want to be really clear on this. Jesus does what none of us are capable of doing, which is he knows exactly where her heart is. He knows exactly what her life is. He knows exactly who she is. And so he takes the level from here to here and just drops it right down in the core of her heart and says, okay, you want this living water? It's great. He says, Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And then Jesus says to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And so it's like the woman, she, she answers him like, I have no husband. So she's being honest, but she's actually, in this point, being with a guy right now, and in relations with a guy that would make him, that's meant to be done in marriage, and would make him a husband, she's saying you have five husbands. Now Jews believe like three, you're done. So she's obviously way, way past that. And he says, look, you're right. You're, You're telling me the truth. Good job. I'm proud of you. You told me the truth. But bring your husband. And she goes, then she does, which I think, again, this is one of those things that all of us do, right? Wow, that, like, hurts. Like, if someone said something to you that was like, oh, you know all my dark stuff. And let's be honest, she knew this about her. It's the reason why she's out at the well at noon alone. Because she's already been ostracized by what she's done. She's already been, she's already been dejected by her people. She's been pulled out away from them. She's already understands that. So then Jesus, this man she's never met, says, Here, let me tell you about you. So then what she does is that's that's where it's painful. The Fort Knox people, this is where you start retreating. Uh oh, run away. And so she says, Sir, which is Lord is the word, but it's it's a respect thing, I perceive that you are a prophet. So she tries to take it right from back here and come right back up to theology again. Wow, you just told me everything about it. I perceive you're a prophet. And she kind, of, she kind of pushes against it a little bit. Now, it also is worth saying that the, that the Samaritans and the Jews both alike believed that the Messiah was coming. They believed that a Messiah was coming and that it would happen. So they both held this belief. The the Samaritans held it through Moses where he said, someone greater than me will come and Deuteronomy, we see that like he he had prophesied it. So that's where they went. Obviously, the Jews had a lot more books where they talked about it. But she believed that that was coming. So she said, I perceive that you are a prophet. And then she goes on like, okay, something's different about you. But before I really open up to you, before I really, really open up to you, I'm gonna push on this one more time. She goes in this whole worship thing. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, this Mount Gerizim. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And then Jesus says to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. This is, this is they say, this is a, not a, meant to be offensive, but essentially, look, like the Samaritans worship because they don't understand what they're worshiping, is what he's saying. So he's like, You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. So it's almost like she's like, I know he's coming, and he'll explain this, because what you're saying right now doesn't make a lot of sense, and then Jesus just comes out and says, I'm him. I'm that guy you're waiting for him. I'm sitting right in front of you. And we don't get this, like, tear-felt, like, moment where she drops down. And she's like, oh, I believe Jesus. Right? We actually get something kind of different. She leaves the, we, which I love that we get this in the, in the Gospel of John. Like, this account makes this, to me, seem more real. She just, at that moment, leaves, and the bucket of water's there. It's almost like, Jesus, get your own water. i got to go tell some people about this. And she runs back to Samaria. Samaria and while she's having this conversation with him, or, or to the town, while she's having this conversation with him, the disciples come up. And we see that they come up and they're like, this, this whole story, and you have to read it later. I'm going to kind of just do it half justice. But they're like, whoa, he's talking to a woman. What's going on here? And like, they're even confused. Like, why, why is he doing this? And then he's like, they're like, here, Jesus, eat. And Jesus then comes back and says, look, I'm not hungry. I'm here to do the will of the Father. Like, my food is for him. And he's pushing against the physical and saying, look, I'm doing so much more than the water you drink and the food you eat. I'm about bringing a harvest of my kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Like, do you realize what's happening right now? And then he goes in this beautiful parable. He's like, well, sowers and reap, and there's time. Well, let me tell you right now, you get a reap when you didn't sow. Just be ready. And then we hear in this, this text a bunch of Samaritans come out from the city. So I don't know how the, 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 the story goes for the woman that walks into the town, but you've got to remember this is a woman that was not looked on well. And, and, and we also know that, like, in, in this culture, the, 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 the testimony of a woman wouldn't have been held with high regard. And so he's, he, he goes in, she goes in there, and she's like, look, look, this guy out there told me everything that I had done. And I kind of feel like if I was one of the people in town, I was like, well, everyone knows that, lady. <laughs> I mean, like, let's be honest. You know, you got five husbands. This isn't a big town. Pretty easy. Right? But I don't know what she said, but whatever she displayed, it was enough for many Samaritans to come running to Christ. And I feel like she almost said something, look, look, this guy told me everything that I'd done and he offered me everlasting life. Like this guy knows who I am and instead of cutting me off like the rest of you have so that I have to walk my, my hind out to the water in the middle of the day to get water because I'm afraid of being around you people, he invited me in to this relationship of everlasting life and I, like he knew what I'd done. He knew who I was and he still offered it to me. Now, Jesus had every right to get out there and hold up a sign when he walked up to her and she walked up, and he could have the sign, Samaritan woman alone. Look, you're not welcome here. Read the sign. You're wrong. He had every right to do that. Like, he was was every right. He's like, your belief's wrong. No, wait, let's just add adulteral. Let's add a few other things in this list of what you're doing here. You've been married way too many times. You're you're being ridiculous with a dude that you're not even married to right now. Like, let's just add it all right here. And he could have held that sign up and he would have been right. God hates you. That's what that sign says. What Jesus did instead was three very key aspects I want to focus in on out of this test. First one is he was super intentional. Super intentional. He says it even in the end. He's like, I didn't come to eat your food. I came to do the will of the Father. So you know what he did? He left Jerusalem with a mission of I'm going to go and show the hope to the Samaritans who to this day, this is that far and near that we all got to take advantage of last week. To this day, they were never, ever going to have a chance when it came to Jewish Messiah. They were, awesome. they were done. They were cut out. And he said, no, I'm, I'm going to go. And I think, like this is me reading, I think Jesus was so intentional. He was so in tune with the Father. We know that he was always praying. Like he was was dedicated to God's will. And so he gets in the town. He's like, hey, you disciples, go get some food. Have fun finding something that's kosher. Good luck. And then he says, okay, I'm going to sit right here on this well. I'm going to sit in this spot. Let's see, she's coming from that part of the town. I'm going to sit right here. I'm just going to look at her. So when she comes, she sees me. So she has an opportunity to experience me face to face. He was super intentional. And that's the first thing I think we need to be when we're devoted to this world. We have got to be intentional, which takes us being steeped in God's word, in prayer with him, intentional in our walk, so that we can hear his voice leading us to those that don't know him. Jesus was intentional. The second thing Jesus did in this is there were justifiable cultural reasons not to do it, but, but he chose to be relational. He took all those, those things out and said, look, look, there are reasons. I could hold this sign up. I could do that. But I'm going to be relational. I'm going to be graciously relational. He kept taking her theological questions and bringing them back down to personal. And not in some offensive way, although, I mean, let's, let's be honest. If you sat in front of Jesus and Jesus started laying out all the things that you were doing that were sin, it would be a little awkward. I'm not going to lie. Oh, that hurts. Oh, that hurts. But he entered into this relationship in a way that was culturally unacceptable. And you say, look, I'm going to be intentional. I'm here for a purpose. You and I are to be intentional. It's not just a cup of coffee. That person serving you coffee is a person made in the image of God. It's not just a coworker, a family member. They are more than that. And you, as the church, are to display the wisdom of God to them as salt and light. Intentional, intentional, intentional. And the second one he did was relational. He was so relational in this situation. He entered into a spot that was so hard and messy, so difficult. Now, this is an extreme example, but he just, he just jumped in relationally. We see him do it with the tax collectors. Matthew's like, I believe in you. He's like, sweet, throw me a meal. Let's invite all your tax collector friends. He like, just jumped into this relationship. He's very, very relational. And the third thing that Jesus did is he displayed an overwhelming amount of grace truth. See, he he didn't, he didn't just shower her with grace. He helped her understand that what she was doing wasn't a part of truth, but then it instended grace in spite of what she was doing. Do You see that? He didn't just say, hey, you're right. Your husbands are no good, and you've, you've failed everything. In fact, you are a half-breed Jew. You are not welcome in this, in this kingdom. She had all that, all that baggage. I'm not welcome. I'm a woman. No one likes me. I've got five ex-husbands, and the guy I'm with right now isn't my husband, and this is a mess. And he said, yeah, I know all that, but come have some living water. Yeah, 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 you're right. That isn't supposed to be there, but, but drink from me. I offer you eternal life, and what I do is different than anything else this world offers. It's not about where you worship or what church you go to or how holy you know the theology. It's about this relationship, and he brought in grace and truth. And He said, "Look, look, yeah, that's not who you are. No, 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 you're not. You're not a. You're not an adulterer or a Samaritan. You're a child of God now." And I think that's why she goes into the town. And she's like, "Look, look," and we say we tons of the word is is, is many Samaritans that they began believed. Jesus brought his kingdom to an area that had no hope of his kingdom and he says to his disciples look the harvest is plenty and this is a chance where you can sow and reap at the exact same time you can take on the people that have been labored before you you ever done this where you're talking to someone like well i'm curious about your, your god or your church thing has this ever happened to you where they're like well i had this friend that and they tell the story about how they showed this really beautiful picture of christ in their life and it's like ever since then i felt like that's someone laboring and you getting to reap this is why the church is meant to do this. This is why God commands us to be intentional as his salt and light. Because you may labor for years with one person, but someone else can reap, and both is happening at the exact same time. We don't have to wait the four months that they had to wait for crops to show up. You can sow and reap at the exact same time, and Jesus is saying the harvest is plenty. There are so many people, and I am gonna lead you. The spirit of God that is in you is going to lead you to those people. Now be intentional about it. And be relational. And and carry grace and truth. Now here, I think this is worth saying. If you have those three things, if you don't have one of them, you're kind of messing it up. See, I think a lot of us like, well, I'm just going to be really, really relational. Yeah, but that's good. But Jesus obviously encompassed intentional and grace and truth with it. So you're like, man, I'm just going to bring that truth. It's like, yeah, but you know what? Sometimes if you have a relationship, it's a lot easier to hurt. Well, I'm just going to be super intentional, and I'm going to always buy coffee there. That's great, but you might want to step into a relationship and share some grace and truth. This is why salt and light is so. You can't just do, you can't just preach. You've got to do both. And so what we get out of Jesus is this one as well is we're, we're, we're called to enter into this mess as instruments of God. We are called with a purpose to be intentional in the lives of those around us. And I get it. Like some of you right now, you're like, well, I'm— <clears throat> I'm really, really new at this thing. Like I, you know, I've been in and around the church for a while, but I just, I don't know if I understand everything. You know that, that you have the hope of Christ and someone else doesn't? Remember we talked last week, like, you were an addict and you renamed, you know, your child of mine? Like, no, no, you're not an addict, you're my child. Remember we talked, that's, that's transformative. So if you have the freedom in Christ, then you have something to share. I mean, I, there is something to be said about pouring your word, yourself into God's word and knowing more because the more you pour into it, the more he speaks through you, the more he trains you, the more you know him. It's a beautiful thing, and I call you to do all be intentional about doing that. But don't use some excuse. Ah, I just, you know, I don't know if I'd have the right thing. Great. You know what? There's nothing wrong with someone telling someone like, you know what? I believe that Jesus is like, okay, well, tell me the eschatology and this this and this. And you're like, man, I don't know. But can I tell you about my life? Can, can, we, can we learn on this together? Could we spend some time studying this together? Would you would you be willing to enter in and have a cup of coffee with me and sit across a table? And I know it's going to be messy, and I understand we're going to disagree on some stuff theologically, but that's okay. Because God has called me to be salt and light. Jordan's going to come up, the band's going to come up, we're going to worship some more. I would just push on you guys as much as possible so that all of us have a sign. If we're, if we're not careful, we all have that sign we're holding. And like I said, we're not, we're not overtly doing it. We're not out in the, in the public holding up the sign saying God hates you. But we have this posture when it comes to a class of person, a specific person, a gender, a, a, a preferential thing that they have in their life. We hold this sign up. And look, like I said, you may be right like Jesus could have been. He could have held that sign up all day long for that Samaritan woman. And he would have been right. Wouldn't have been sinful. But Jesus says, you know what? My kingdom's about doing something a little bit differently. I'm going I'm to enter into this mess. And he has called you and I, his disciples, those that have surrendered to his work, to be those people, to be intentional, to be relational, and to carry and communicate grace and truth, to be both salt, what we do, and light, what we preach. He's called us to be this. This isn't, you aren't free from this. I ran out of time, but I had a whole bunch of other scriptures that could have told us about how you come, you have to do this. Like God has called you to do this. And here's the best part. And remember, this goes back to why we are the church, the cornerstone, we are founded on Jesus Christ alone. Because of his grace being extended to you, you can now extend grace to others. Because he first loved you, you can now love. It's him doing it in you. And he's given you all that you need. And here's the thing. He's given us those as this small sea church, as a part of this large sea church. He's given us all, if we'd work together, this amazing thing where we will display God's kingdom in a way that this world has never seen. We've got to be willing to be devoted to it and enter into this mess. And so my challenge for you this week is, is those people that you see over and over and over again, what would it be like to just stop for a moment and actually take a genuine interest in them? There's that person, that neighbor that you're like, man, I see them every week. They're always super nice. Like, what would it take to invite them over for a meal? Like, enter into that relationship. Sit at the well. Be intentional. Let God lead you in that way. And here's, here's, here's what I've found. As scary as that is, there is nothing more amazing then out of the grace that you've experienced in God, extending that grace to others and watching God do something in their heart. Not because you're amazing, but because he is. He's invited you to be a part of this. And so my, my challenge, my encouragement is to not just hold a sign, but to enter into these relationships, to intentionally hear God's will, to be connected to him so that he can be leading you to the people around you. And then, and then just jump in relationally, but don't forget to share the grace and the truth that exists in God's word and God's life through the Jesus Christ that we all serve. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. God, I know that in this room alone, those that are in this world that are not of you are represented by a massive amount of people. And right now you have, you have individuals in each of our lives. You have individuals that we have continually met, we have continually spent time with, that, that the conversation just seems a little bit easier, that, the, that the, the, the space, there always seems to be just a little bit extra space with that person. God, I pray that you would, you would call your saints, your holy priesthood, your set-apart people that are in this room to be intentional with those people and not treat them as some, some Samaritan half-breed person that's deserved of hate but instead would sit at the well and enter into a relationship. God, I pray that we would be the light and the salt that you call us to in this incredibly dark and rotting world. God, would your kingdom come in a mighty way on earth as it is in heaven. God, for those in the room that, that still are still struggling as to whether or not they believe or they don't even know necessarily, they've been spent so much time in and around the church or they're struggling to just, just be saturated by what it means to hear you are my child. God, would you just wreak havoc on their hearts? Would you break down the walls that are in them? Would you break down those those things so that they could ultimately understand what it means to be a child of you? Inherited in a kingdom, co-heirs with Christ, serving you for your glory and your glory alone. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.